Hi, and welcome to Beyond Madness from me, Christopher Paul Sabo. As a psychiatrist, I host conversations about issues emanating from psychiatry that impact society, as well as discuss societal issues that have potential implications for mental health and emotional well-being. My guests include thought leaders from both within the discipline of psychiatry and beyond. Beyond Madness is brought to you in proud association with Adcock Ingram OTC, sponsors of Brave. Inspiring communities, one pharmacy at a time. I'm going to start today's episode with a quote from a 2020 article on poverty and mental health, because I believe it sets the scene quite succinctly for our conversation to follow. And it reads as follows. Poverty is both a cause of mental health problems and a consequence. Poverty in childhood and among adults can cause poor mental health through social stresses, stigma, and trauma. Equally, mental health problems can lead to impoverishment through loss of employment or underemployment or fragmentation of social relationships. This vicious cycle is in reality even more complex, as many people with mental health problems move in and out of poverty, living precarious lives. And I think that that word precarious is a very powerful word in, in, in terms of those who suffer with mental illness. Now, this is based on the Scottish experience. So this is a first world experience. And the authors of that particular article were Nifton and English from 2020. So joining us for today's episode entitled Poverty and Mental Illness, we've got uh, Professor Crick Lunt, Dr. John Parker, and Danny Deliberto. Now, Crick is a professor or the professor of global mental health and development in the King's Global Health Institute and Center for Global Mental Health, Health Services and Population Research Department, Institute of Psychiatry, Psychology and Neuroscience at King's College in London. But he trained as a clinical psychologist right here in South Africa at the University of Cape Town. John is a psychiatrist currently in private practice in Cape Town, but formerly at Lentechia Hospital. And he was actively involved in the Spring Foundation, located at Lentechia Hospital, that used a range of psychosocial rehabilitation and outreach projects, for example, the Lentechia Market Garden Project, to reestablish a sense of hope and recovery through reconnection to the natural world and to community identity and heritage, which I think is, is, is critical. And last but not least, Danny. Now, Danny, I've, I've got to tell you, I went to the meetchangemakers.com site and there it said you're the founder of Ladles of Love. When I first read it, I thought it read Ladies of Love. And I thought to myself, wait a sec, what have I walked into here? And then it took me a while to sort of back off and say, no, man, you've, you've, you've confused the L with an I. Anyway, so I got it straight. And I think it's important just to give some little background to, to, to Danny. He, he's the founder of this organization. It started in July 2014, providing soup and sandwiches. And there's a whole organization that um, – Sources and provides groceries that go to community organizations and, and, and they cook and distribute food to homeless shelters and impoverished areas of Cape Town. And when I spoke to Danny offline, up to 250,000 meals per week. Now, Danny, I'm not sure if this is accurate, but it says you're a love activist who restores dignity. And I think that's, that's a very nice byline. So I always like to, to, to set the scene by defining basic concepts that you know, will form the basis of the discussion. So I started out, you know, in preparation thinking, what is poverty? Because I think this is the sort of one of the central themes besides mental illness and, and, and mental health. And I must say, when I, when I started looking at, at, at what poverty was, I, I found myself going down a bit of a rabbit hole in terms of definitions and, and, and interpretations. All I can say is, I know it when I see it, but what is it? So, I'm actually going to start with you, Danny, because you work with homeless. You provide food for impoverished areas. And, and so if I said to you, what is poverty? What would your immediate response be? Sure. Um, I think you, you said it. Um, I think it's, it's quite a broad. For me, it can be poverty of a mental, you know, a mental way of thinking, yes. a way of thinking. Um, you can have that poverty mentality, that scarcity mentality, poverty, obviously, when it comes to your material belongings. Right. Um, and then, of course, I mean, the poverty that I see where a child or an adult don't know when they're getting their next meal. So they don't even have access to their basic human right of food, yes. security, 
Um, and food security, we're talking about nutritious food, not, you know, food that feeds the body, the nutrients that right. it needs to function correctly. Um, so for, and, and then poverty of surroundings, um, when, when you're surrounded by poverty, um, yeah, your whole, your whole mental state, your whole way of being, your, I mean, a child that grows up in poverty only knows that. Yes. So you become very limited and, and I think it affects your whole, um, it affects your performance as, as a, as a human being. Um, because I like, you block yourself. I like the fact that you've taken a multi-layered view of poverty because I think we tend to restrict our understanding of poverty, or maybe I speak for myself, to economic and purely economic terms. But I think increasingly in the 21st century, and I'm seeing it written about quite a bit, they speak about the poverty of spirit and this lack of meaning and connectedness. So I think you've kind of brought that in. Crick, I mean, obviously poverty and mental illness has been something which you've had a a significant focus on in terms of your own research and your own journey in terms of research. Your thoughts? Yeah, I really agree with Danny. I mean, I think poverty is a multidimensional construct. You know, it's not just about the traditional World Bank definition of absolute poverty, which is, you know, living on less than $2 a day. But it's about a range of different deprivations that people experience, uh, which has an impact on their human development, their, their capability to functions society their their capacity to pursue the things that are important to them you know to make choices so poverty is not only that state of material deprivation yes. but it has a profound impact on our mental health our, our capacity to make choices um, the extent to which we discount future rewards for more immediate rewards you know these have an, an impact on economic decision making in turn reinforcing poverty so I think it's really important when we talk about poverty to think about it in very multidimensional terms. But also, and I think this is the missing piece of a lot of the discussion, is to think quite carefully about its mental health consequences yeah. and how we can really try and break that cycle of, of poverty and mental illness. So I like the way that we're broadening our understanding of, 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 of poverty because I think that, you know, the average, you know, maybe I'm, I'm making a presumption here, but I think when people think of poverty, they're not bringing in all of these aspects. And I think certainly as psychiatrists who like to think that we're holistic in how we think and how we operate, biopsychosocial and increasingly adding the spiritual component, I think this is a more holistic understanding of, of poverty. John, your thoughts? Because you've worked at Lentechia and you've obviously worked, you know, in, in, in specific projects. And let me just confirm, is the Spring Foundation still active? And I'm specifically curious about the Lentechia market garden project yes to um yes the spring foundation is still very much active um to be honest the the market garden itself uh, is 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 currently operational but but really uh right on the edge of closure um just because of funding difficulties um just keeping it sustainable has been a real challenge and uh yeah in the last two years i think the, the the, the whole funding envelope has has kind of tightened up a lot. Right. So yeah, but um, you know, so it's still all happening, but only just. But I mean, kudos to you. I mean, I think that was a wonderful project, and I actually want to read what the Lentechia Market Garden stood for, and hopefully will continue to stand for. And if there's any wealthy donor who will listen to this podcast episode. Money well spent if you go to the springfoundation.org and make a contribution. But I mean, the Lentechia Market Garden was a working, small, commercial farm focusing on a dual purpose of providing nutritious food whilst also providing a platform for recovery opportunities in the form of functional and vocational skill development. And up to 20 patients at a time were participating. And when I read about it, I thought, wow, what a wonderful initiative, you know, emanating from Lentechia Hospital involvement with the Spring Foundation. And I really think that that was sort of putting one's, you know, uh, efforts into action and actually doing something really constructive. But your thoughts on poverty, John, because obviously, I mean, the, the market garden is one potential uh, uh, means of, of assisting in that respect. You must have had some very specific thoughts when you got involved with the Spring Foundation. No, absolutely. I, and, and, and really, you know, I think two, two things strike me here. And the one is, the one is, it, I agree, you know, for, for all the multidimensionality of of how we should think about poverty, um, you can't get away from hunger right. as as a as an absolute 
basic, right? You know, and 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 to me, when when yeah, one of the one of the most sort of stark kind of wake up calls on in in this stuff was was looking at at food insecurity figures, and and when I asked uh, one of the researchers, well, what do you mean by food insecurity? She, she said, well, um, the lowest level of food insecurity um, is is when you when you cannot be sure, at least twice a week, you cannot be sure there's going to be food on the table that evening. Twice a week. And, yeah. And this was, this was happening when I heard that I, I had two young children. And right. I don't know if you've ever tried to get your children to go to bed when they're saying I'm hungry. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and, and it's, you know, it's just, it's just, you know, something it's impossible, you know, to, to think about. And to think about that as a reality for for families happening, you know, regularly on a, on on a regular basis all the time, and we're not talking a small percentage here; we're, we're talking significant numbers of, of people. No, no, just to yeah. just just to put a number to that. I mean, obviously, when I was doing my background reading on, on on poverty, as I said, I went down a bit of a rabbit hole, but I came across two very interesting documents. Actually, the one was from Stats SA, which is from 2019 which is quite recent. The other one was entitled Poverty and Inequality in South Africa, Final Report. It's a South African government report, and apparently the project was initiated in 1995. It's a 312-page document. I'm not sure when it was published because, strangely enough, it doesn't actually give a publication date. But we're talking here about poor. They define it as being the poorest 40% who comprise just under 50% of the population. So just to kind of put a number to what you're talking about, John, I mean, that's a significant percentage of the population. And I think people need to appreciate that if you look at the Gini coefficient, which is a measure of inequality, South Africa has been number one for a long time until we were usurped by Brazil. So we're still sitting up there as one of the most unequal societies, if not the most unequal society in the world. And this issue of poverty is particularly pronounced in the rural areas, and I'm going to come to why that's so significant when we start looking at mental health resources. Crick, I want to come back to you because obviously the link between poverty and mental illness, you know, it's, 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 it's pretty well established internationally, and you obviously have looked into this in, in, in greater detail. And I just want to reference the, the title of the article that, that, that I mentioned. It was Poverty and Mental Disorders, Breaking the Cycle in low-income and middle-income countries. So my opening quote was from a first-world high-income country. Now we're getting more down to where we are in terms of levels of poverty and the link between poverty and mental illness. So I'm going to leave it to you, quick to kind of just elaborate on, 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 on the link more specifically. Yeah, so that paper that you referred to, Christopher, was a paper that we published in, in the Lancet in 2011. And... Uh, it was built on this understanding that poverty and mental illness are, are related in a cyclical relationship. Right. Um, so there are essentially two pathways. The one leads from poverty to mental illness, and this is referred to as the social causation pathway. And, and, and so this is the way in which, and I think we've already touched on this, um, circumstances of poverty increase risk for mental health problems by increasing stress, uh, increasing food insecurity, um, increased exposure to trauma, uh, worse general health, you know, these, these all lead on the pathway from poverty to mental illness. Right. And then conversely, living with a mental illness, you're more likely to drift into or remain in poverty during the course of your life. Uh, why? Because you spend more on healthcare generally, not only in mental health care, but general health care. Um, your disability means it's more difficult for you to find a job or to keep work. And often stigma will exclude you from income generating opportunities. And so this is what we refer to as the social drift pathway. Right. Now, if we want to try and do something about this yes. cycle, we need to design interventions which address both of these pathways. We can't mm. just provide treatments, for example, and send people back to the same conditions that made them sick in the first place. Uh, neither is it enough just to provide financial poverty alleviation interventions because poverty, as we've already said, is a, is a multidimensional beast. It doesn't only affect your material possessions, but affects the way you think, and it creates a whole range of stresses and exposures um, that increase your, your risk for mental illness. And so what we did in this paper was we first looked at the effects of financial poverty reduction interventions on the social causation pathway. In other words, if you reduced poverty, was there an improvement in mental health? Right. 
And at that stage, this is 2011, we only found four uh, trials that had, had answered this question. What, what I should add is that very encouragingly, there's recently been a paper published in Nature Human Behavior by Joel McGuire and colleagues. And uh, they found a large number of studies, I think around 45 randomized control trials now, showing the significant Im impact of cash transfer programs on improving mental health and well-being outcomes. So since our earlier review, really robust evidence now that financial poverty reduction interventions can have mental health benefits. But, uh, but just, so, yeah. just to jump in there, so now we're not specifically talking about uh, psychiatric populations, or are we talking about psychiatric populations specifically or general poor populations in terms of how it might impact on future mental health issues and mental illness? Yeah, much more the latter. So general populations, okay. the people who are receiving uh, financial poverty reduction interventions like cash transfers, so the equivalent of what we have in South Africa is the child support grant. Right. Do you have reduced depression or anxiety or improved well-being as a result of receiving these cash transfer programs? And and the answer seems to be yes, this is this is indeed the, fact, the case. Um, then just getting back to the, the 2011 paper, we looked yes. at uh, studies which had evaluated the effects of a mental health treatment or care intervention on poverty outcomes, in other words, on economic outcomes. And there at that stage, we found actually a very compelling picture which showed that for every trial which had intervened to provide a mental health treatment, it could have been a psychosocial rehab program, psychological therapy, psychotropic medication. Yeah. For every trial that had done that and showed mental health improvements and measured economic outcomes, there was an economic improvement which went hand in hand with the mental health improvement. So there really is, if you look at both of those pathways, the social causation and the social drift pathway, there's really now quite compelling evidence that we can indeed break this cycle if we design interventions which address both of, of these pathways. So I think, John, you had some thoughts around the disproportionate impact of mental illness compared to physical illness and how it uh, impacts on uh, financial well-being. Do you want to just speak a little bit to that? Because I think it's important to differentiate because we are speaking about mental illness specifically. Um, yes. Yeah, your thoughts, John? Yeah, well… Specifically, severe mental illness. Yes. Um, I, I, I don't think you know much. Much cognizance is, is taken of this, but you know, if if someone in your household has a heart attack, for example, right, um, or or some other severe physical illness, um, uh, don't don't end up in hospital and you know need need care at home. You, you can basically delegate one family member. To, to take care of that and, and probably doesn't matter who, you know, too much who that is. Right. If you've got a family member becoming manic or psychotic. Yes. And needs to be cared for. You, you need strong, able-bodied individuals and probably more than one. Yeah. You know, it takes the whole family out and probably some neighbors too. Right. And and I, I you know I don't think that's ever really been calculated in, in, into the impact of, of of severe mental illness, and and what what that means for entire families and and communities. Well, you I know, think I think in terms of the 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 effect of that on on everyone's ability to earn money, not to mention the destruction and and so on. So there's like a, I mean there's a direct cost and an indirect cost. I mean it's 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 Time spent and money not earned. So you've got like a double whammy when you're in that kind of situation. That's how I would understand it. No, absolutely. And that's even before we, we add the stigma into the equation because that's the, that's the other big thing where, you know, mental health diagnosis um, has an impact on your employment future, um, unlike any other illness. That's absolutely true. So I'm going to come back to that, but I just wanted to bring Danny in here because you obviously work with homeless people and there was a project during COVID times undertaken in, in KwaZulu-Natal where homeless folk were needing to be taken off the street. They were put into specific shelters. But a colleague of ours, Dr. Salduka, down in, 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 in Durban, what he had done was they'd also kind of screened for addiction, substance abuse. They'd weaned people off. They'd put them onto specific programs. And what was really interesting was how many of the homeless people turned out to have and with substance problems underlying 
untreated mental illness. I'm not sure what your experience of, of, of the homeless folk is that, that you encounter. You're obviously not a psychiatrist. So I'm not expecting you to make psychiatric diagnoses, but your sense of people as you engage with them and as you encounter them. I would say for me, the homeless community, I'm talking about the homeless community. Um, I would say way over half struggle with mental, let's call it challenge. challenges. Yes, I think that's a good word. You know, I, I went homeless for 48 hours, no, 54 hours to experience homelessness and to get a deeper understanding of it. And um, I don't know, you, you do all know the Maslow's hierarchy of yep. needs. Um, I, I, I left my apartment with nothing except the clothes that I was wearing. No cell phone, no money, no nothing. And I can tell you within hours, I slipped into level one um, survival. Yeah. Um, there was no future planning. There's no, so your, your mind is constantly thinking, well, where do I go to the toilet? Especially a person who likes to cleanse himself daily, yes. can eat whenever he wants. Yeah. Now all of a sudden I'm planning shit. How am I going to eat? Where am I going to get money to eat? Where do I go to the toilet? Where am I going to shower? Um, God, when I need the toilet, that was the biggest thing for me. And, and sure. that's, that's my thought process. Then take the, the crime element that you have to deal with when you're on the street. Because homelessness, these guys, it's about survival. So they will take wherever they can. Yeah. They will steal the shoes off your feet yes. while you're sleeping. Now imagine being in that constant state of insecurity, unknowing. Um, you become this hardened person. So your mental capacity changes. It's, it's no longer I, – the only thing that kept me sane was that I knew I was going to be off the street in 54 hours. Yeah. That was it. But when I put myself into that space where I thought, okay, imagine – I imagined that I wasn't going to go back home. Yeah. The, 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 the loneliness that set in, the fear yeah. that set in, um, was, it's just overwhelming. And, and what, and then when you start talking to the homeless and then people start, I started smelling after 24 hours. Yes. So your dignity is dropping. Your self-respect is dropping. Your self-esteem is dropping. Like I'm talking, we're talking within hours. It's, it's all starting to, to diminish. So as an individual, you're now trying to deal with your own self-respect and your own self-love mm. and, and, and trying to have this beautiful outlook on life and trying, and trying to respect others. So all of a sudden, you can't even respect yourself. You don't love yourself. How do you respect and how do you love anyone else? And and then yeah, people turn to drugs to deal with it. Mm. People turn to alcohol, and and I mean the, the guys that stand in my queues, the amount of them that talk to themselves. Yes, for example, they just stand there talking. You can see they are not how they even know to stand in the queue, um, and, and then that they walk in to come and get the food, and then they leave, and you just see them wandering off. They are not. Compass mentors, right. that's no, no. the right word. Fair enough. So, so it's your your surroundings and it's your survival. I, I maybe it's a way of survival kicking in. Yes. That um, that changes your whole state of being so that you can survive. Because as 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 nature wants to survive, it will find any way, I believe, to help you survive. Well, I think that's a that's a pretty profound description of, of, of what is potentially going on in, in, in the minds of, of, of so many that we see on the streets. And I want to come back to, well, obviously, John, in the clinical setting, um, this is obviously a real concern that we have our patients, when I say ours, not in the possessive sense, but psychiatric patients out there under the circumstances, untreated, basically taking care of themselves. I mean, what are your thoughts on that? Because obviously the, the, the individuals that, that Danny is describing are those who we would say have severe mental illness. Well, this, you know, this, this is the, the horrible reality of mental health care in South Africa. Yeah. You know, it's, it's, it's absolutely at the bottom of the spending pile yeah. because yeah. The, the other thing we can say about this population of people is they do not have a voice. 
you know so these 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 are the the people no one no one really wants to look at at the traffic light they're the people who when they do get mentally ill are, are locked up still despite um all sorts of plans to to create humane centers for mental health care in hospital the majority of these people when they do get admitted are locked up in vast institutions behind high fences and and walls that that hide what goes on in those and then they're turfed out immediately straight back into the street to make space for the next lot without any reasonable effort at at any kind of of ongoing rehabilitation you know um, and then we wonder why they come back you, you raise so many issues that I want to touch on um not least of which is the issue of deinstitutionalization but I want to come back to crick because John mentioned an important word, voice. And when I looked at your paper, and obviously there's been research that has gone beyond your paper, and I'm thinking to myself, here's the data. This is the voice of the voiceless, so to speak, because this is, this is what we should be using to motivate for what John is, 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 is clearly describing as, as, as deficient and Danny too, in terms of their observations and John clinical, Danny in the real world setting. And, and I look at, this paper of yours from 2011, and as I say, all the research that's that's come subsequent to that, I mean, that is surely, because everybody talks about being data-driven and follow the science. We've heard that expression, whatever it really means these days. But why is that not a voice? Because as Danny was speaking, I thought to myself, I remember being told many, many years ago, if you want to change the hospital services and you want to change the medical services, make sure that politicians are not allowed to have private medical aid. They must use state facilities and you will change services overnight. So Crick, here's a question for you and I don't expect you to, to buy into what I'm saying, but in terms of a voice, your data is powerful in terms of something fundamental, which is that even if we take the 2011 paper, whatever research has come subsequent to that, already there, there was a powerful case made for mental health funding as a source of poverty alleviation to some extent. The government continuously talks about poverty alleviation. We know that we have an unequal distribution of wealth in this country. Nothing changes. Your thoughts, Crick? Yeah, Christopher, I think it's an ongoing battle. You know, this is an, an ongoing task for all of us working in the mental health field. Um, as mental health professionals, as, as researchers, to continually advocate to policymakers to give uh, mental health greater policy priority. And it's it's it really is an ongoing battle. I mean, I think if you look at the big picture, there are policy changes. When, when I first started working in this area, the WHO produced its first global mental health atlas in 2001. And at that stage, 50% of African countries didn't have a mental health policy at all. Yeah. And fast forward to 2020, it's now up to about 73%. So that's progress of a kind. Yeah. Um, whether that's actually translated into budgets and investment in community health, community mental health care yeah. is another question. Um, but I think, you know, what's really important is that we make not only the humanitarian argument and the ethical argument for investing in mental health care, but we also make the economic argument and we yes. demonstrate the return on investment. And this is really quite exciting work. You know, Dan Chisholm uh, in 2016 published this really important paper in Lancet Psychiatry showing the global return on investment. Uh, okay. that every dollar invested in treatment for depression and anxiety, you would see a two, between two and a five dollar return on investment. That's pretty good. Over the 15 years from 2015, yeah, through yeah. 2030, the SDGs. Um, so, you know, and, and actually we've done some of this work yeah, I've worked with a couple of, of health economists, uh, Sumaya Dokrat and Donella Basara, yeah. to develop a mental health investment case for South Africa. Right. And it was commissioned by the Department of Health. We're really struggling, having finished all the work, to get it heard and taken up by the Department of Health, it has to be said. So this is, you know, this is what we all should be focusing on, but it's a, it really is very, very challenging. That's my issue, really, because we had a five-year plan, as I recall. I can't remember the years specifically, but I know that the five years almost came and went and nothing had really changed. And and essentially, I had to sort of think about Shakespeare, words, words, words. I mean, that's what we were stuck with. And it's all pretty and all looks good. And there's a lot of effort. I mean, I look at that 312-page report coming out of the South African government. I think to myself, wow, you've produced quite a document 
What are you going to do with it? And how is it all going to really translate into something useful? You, you know, what's the utility with all the investment that's gone in? Because that's a negative return on investment as far as I'm concerned. If you put all the energy in and you get nothing out. But I like that idea of, 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 because that was one of my questions in terms of the benefits of, of actually improving mental health and investing in mental health, whether one can calculate it financially. And what you're saying is, yeah. We can yeah, actually, absolutely. and you're looking at a 100 to almost 400 percent return on your investment. And if we look at the financial situation as it is today, that would be a pretty slam dunk investment, actually. Mm-hmm. And I think mm-hmm. that with, with 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 politicians, it seems to me there's there's two aspects. The one is put them in the situation; they've got to feel it. And everything that Danny described, I think, is is critical. And I think the other issue is what is their investment in pursuing exactly what you're describing? What can it do for them in terms of how they can put something on the table that is meaningful and, and, and can give a return? So I'm, I'm really curious maybe and a little bit disappointed that, that it's a Department of Health sponsored or funded or, or collaboration but nobody wants to necessarily do anything with it. So where does it sit right now? I mean that financial model. Yeah, so it's it's sitting and waiting approval by the National Health um, Council, you know, to actually get it adopted. Um, we're in the process of updating our national mental health policy, and yes. it fits perfectly with this. You know, it provides a costing to assist provinces to budget adequately for mental health. Um, but it's a real, real ongoing challenge. I think part of the challenge with with mental health and Martin Knapp, who's one of the world's leading mental health economists at the London School of Economics. He talks about diagonal accounting, you know, for the case of mental health. So this means if you invest in mental health, the economic returns uh, occur at some point in the future, right. often for another sector of society or another government department. So my health budget, if I was to increase the spend for mental health, yes, there might be a return on investment in terms of labor market participation. Uh-huh. But that wouldn't find its way back into the health budget. So you've really got to convince <laughs> yes. government to think in a whole of society approach when okay. it comes to mental health investments. And that's where I think we're missing it. And I think we're also lacking the capacity within government to join those dots and to you know, put all of that together. But what you're talking about are silos because essentially yeah. it's like, well, I'm putting money in on from my budget, but somebody else is benefiting from it. And the question is, so what? Because actually down the road, the benefit that will accrue to somebody else will ultimately come back to you because – you won't have that many people maybe needing the kind of input that you've initially put in. Potentially, I'm, I'm saying. So there's a very, so there's a very siloed approach to, to, to how this is understood. And I mean, is that, is that kind of made clear in making the case that you might put money in, but you won't necessarily benefit, but the country benefits? Isn't that what's most important? The country benefits. We're all working together, surely. Absolutely. And, and we put that in the national mental health investment case for South Africa is that, you know, some of these returns on investment don't accrue directly to the health department. They may accrue, for example, to the education department because right. you might uh, reduce school dropout. You know, yes. if you have a depression and anxiety and suicide prevention program in schools, that's hopefully going to lead to improved school attendance and reduced dropout. So that's an, a benefit to the education system. So you, I mean, so you certainly need to have a very broad perspective. Everybody needs to understand that to deal with a specific problem, there are numerous departments who have to interact together at different levels and with different benefits, but ultimately the benefit accrues to the country as a whole. And I think maybe that's what's not being put across, but what's not being understood and kind of internalized and saying, right, therefore that's what we should be doing. And it's just interesting because I was looking at the, the link locally between mental health and, 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 uh, socioeconomic status. And in this very same South African government's poverty and inequality in South Africa final report from University of Cape Town's project for living standards and development, which is quoted in the report, what you see is that the ultra poor who constitute the bottom 20% have 8.3% prevalence of mental health issues. The poor who are the bottom 40% have 6.5% in terms of mental health issues prevalence, the non-poor, 2.5%. So what one really sees is that there's a gradient 
of, of, of mental health issues related to socioeconomic status. But it's buried in that report. I mean, I had to sort of sift through it and sift through it, and I thought, oh, this is, this is quite a compelling case for the link. But one of the issues that I have, because we're, as a psychiatrist, we have a biopsychosocial model, and I've spoken about spiritual, but the social specifically. And John, I want to come to you here. Because I'm concerned and I've, I've, I've read about it and, 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 and it strikes me. I mean, we're talking here to some extent about social determinants of mental health. And has psychiatry lost social psychiatry? Because, you know, we're very much biopsychosocial and it's all about neuroscience and biology and drugs and not knocking that. It's got its place. But here we're talking about something which is quite profound, actually. We're looking at, at, at humans and the human condition, and I'm concerned that social psychiatry has kind of um, been pushed to one side. Your thoughts on that, John? No, I'd agree with you completely. Um, and that's why, you know, we're, 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 we're still trying to doing the majority of our public sector psychiatry in institutions yeah. in this country. Um, you know, it... it yeah, we, we, we should be going in, in completely the opposite direction. Um, but the, the, the trouble is, you know, when funding is short, you, you know, it tends to get thrown at the crises. Right. You know, so, so, so that's where the, the, the severely acutely mentally ill arriving at emergency centers are seen as by health departments as the problem. And, you know, the, the, the money, most of the money goes to shutting that problem up. Right, getting it out of the way, um, you know. And until I, you know, I think a big, big key to this is is for national government to um, have dedicated funding, so conditional conditional grants for mental health care, in and 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 conditional in very structured ways that that address the the socio economic determinants of mental health. Deal with it right at the beginning. Right. Um, you know, so it's the other thing you can't help noticing going into private practice after working in the public sector. Yes. I spend my days extremely busy dealing with people who are desperately in need of mental health care, but fortunately have medical aids and can afford it. Mm-hmm. Um, and I know that none of these people are getting, you know, similar people with the kind of disorders I'm seeing in private practice ever see a specialist in the public sector. Never mind, you know, they're lucky if they they get to see any form of of healthcare. You know, if one looks at uh, the number of psychiatrists in South Africa, and I'd mentioned the issue of of the sort of disproportionate burden of poverty being in the rural areas. I mean, the number of psychiatrists in rural areas um, in primary healthcare settings is 0.03 per 100,000. Of population. That's the, the last data that we had. In the urban areas, it's, 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 it's a little bit better, um, moving up to 1.52 psychiatrists per 100,000. But what's really interesting is that of the 850 practicing psychiatrists as of 2022, two provinces, Gauteng and Western Cape, have got about 650 of them, actually. So there's even a disproportionate number in terms of the provinces, never mind the whole rural setting. And just for some sort of frame of reference, in many European countries, the number of psychiatrists per 100,000 is 30. So we are significantly under-resourced in that sense, which brings me back to something you were talking about, Crick, which is to target mental health. Look at the deficit in terms of where we are. And how does one begin to compensate for that? And I know that you've spoken about task shifting and those kinds of, 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 of uh, options. And, and maybe you could elaborate on what task shifting is. Let me let you define that. And, and just your response to the issue of the resource limitations that face us where we are right now in terms of where we might need to be to make an impression. And John, I haven't forgotten the issue of deinstitutionalization because I'm going to come back to that. And I'm also going to bring Danny in too. But Crick, in terms of task shifting and how we deal with the uh, uh, resource limitations in terms of manpower, people power. Yeah, so so we really, as you quite rightly say, we don't have enough specialists, enough mental health specialists to keep up with uh, either the growing population or the growing need within the population. So we have to find other strategies and uh, there's been a lot of work, um, especially in the last 15 to 20 years in low and middle income countries, 
uh, to develop task shifting or task sharing models. And this is essentially the use of non-specialist health providers to deliver mental health care. So it could be a primary health care nurse, a community health worker, um, an HIV counsellor uh, to provide basic mental health care. And there have been some really interesting and exciting uh, randomised control trials done um, in which uh, non-specialists are taught to deliver, for example, cognitive behaviour therapy or basic uh, problem-solving counselling uh, or to administer medication or provide community-based support, um, really showing effective outcomes. There's, there's now, for example, in the case of psychological therapies, um, a systematic review and meta-analysis of 27 randomised control trials uh, by someone led by someone called Daisy Singler, yep. showing a, a mean effect size of about 0.49, which is, in in broad terms, that's regarded as moderate. Yes. Um, it's as good as probably most specialists would be able to do. Okay. Um, so this has huge potential if we think about scaling up. But, and I think there's an important but in all of this, mm. one has to pay a lot of careful attention to the training of non-specialists, yes. to their supervision, their accreditation, and look very carefully at the environment in which they deliver care. You know, often they're facing the same social and economic challenges as their clients, yeah. and often they are already overburdened with other healthcare uh, tasks. So we need to think very carefully about who we task share or task shift to, how we support them, how they are remunerated for this additional labor. Um, and this is an ongoing area of research. Um, I, cer- I certainly think from a policymaker's point of view, there's sufficient evidence to invest in this and scale up. But how it's done uh, needs to be given a lot of careful thought. You know, I wonder to some extent if if, if psychiatry, uh, mental health doesn't suffer more because we're sort of put into a basket of non-communicable diseases, um, you know, versus communicable diseases. And certainly with HIV and, and, and infectious diseases, those kind of seem to swamp and sort of dominate the, 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 the picture. And then the NCDs, the non-communicable diseases kind of find their way to the side. And at the bottom of that pile comes mental illness. So I'm just wondering about that, where we, where we are positioned in terms of how government looks at disease. Yeah. I mean, I think the evidence for the links between mental health and HIV, for example, are massive. Yes. And, uh, you know, in both directions. So if right. you're living with HIV, you're twice as likely to be depressed. Conversely, you're living with a mental health problem, you're more at risk of developing HIV. So we've got to be thinking about integration into infectious diseases, also maternal and child health. I mean, if we look at the perinatal depression and anxiety yes. uh, rates in our country, they're extremely high. And there's an opportunity. I mean, that, if we're thinking about low-hanging fruit for policymakers, you know, integrate routine screening for antenatal and postnatal depression and anxiety and referral to a well-supported non-specialist counsellor yeah. can really deal with a lot of that burden. Um, so, it's, so it seems to me also as, as, as psychiatrists, we're not necessarily taking the data and, and shaping it in a way that we can knock on doors and keep knocking until people get it. Because you've just described in terms of HIV and, and you know, this communicable versus non-communicable diseases, they actually are linked and so, therefore, although HIV might appear to swamp us, we actually can ride on the tailcoats and, and, and vice versa. And I think maybe that's an opportunity lost. But I want to come back to I'm, – I'm going to switch completely now to the Spring Foundation because as I was talking about the Spring Foundation and thinking about ladles of love, I was thinking that the Lentechia Market Garden would be a wonderful produce supplier for ladles of love. John, I think you and Danny need to get together to have a conversation or am I a little bit out of line by sort of uh, just sort of spontaneously thinking, hang on a sec, I think there's a there's a link here between two of my guests, Danny and then John. Uh, yeah, I was actually going to ask John um, if he wanted to chat. Um, one of our programs is Feed the Soil um, and that's about converting your food waste into compost, turning um, – and then giving this compost to our community farmers for free, and then also trying to create route to market for these community farmers. Um, and, and it's going quite well. Um, it's, it requires ongoing investment, so that's, that is but quite a bit of a challenge. But um, we, we are doing quite nicely. I mean, we've collected around 50 tons of food waste. We've converted about 15 to 20 tons into compost, which we're distributing through 25 farmers. We're working, we've got about 50 farmers on our 
radar that we yeah. try and buy vegetables from weekly, sell them. I, we either try and sell them to, to market or we'll just give them to our soup kitchen. So, um, yeah, happy to have a chat. John, <laughs> putting you on the spot. Yeah, no, definitely. It, it sounds like we, we're doing quite similar things in, in terms of access to market. I mean, cause, yeah, we, we also, you, you know, work with a whole lot of small farmers on the Cape Flats right. uh, because that, that is one of the big, big challenges, but definitely love to, to speak, speak more about that. Fantastic. So that'll take place offline, but uh, it's good that you've been connected via this podcast. So I'm, I'm very happy to have uh, made the connection. So I wanted to get back to deinstitutionalization because I think that, you know, uh, personal reflection, I, I was in the States in the late 80s and I was in Los Angeles and uh, I had to catch a bus into the center of town because in those days one still rode the Greyhound. And I was uh, sitting with two guys on the um, on a bench and, and waiting for the bus and, and they said, what are you doing? Where are you going? It's got a very interesting background story to it, but I won't get into that. And they said, well, listen, when you get off the bus, this is where you go to. You go straight there. Don't look left. Don't look right. Go there and come straight back. And I thought, okay, how bad can it be? I, you know. I walked into what can only be described as a, as a live mental institution. I've never seen, and I wasn't a psychiatry registrar. I hadn't done psychiatry, but I was struck by the number of people walking the streets in downtown Los Angeles at that time with, with clearly diagnosable mental illness. Fast forward, I then caught the bus out of Los Angeles and I had never seen such a thing as the, Trying to get into the bus station, you had to wade through mentally ill people to get into the bus station. We're talking late 80s. As we drove out, I looked to my right out of the window, and I saw this line, this long line of, of what looked like tents on the pavement, and these were all the homeless people. I'd never seen such a sight, late 80s. So that was my first experience of mental illness on the streets and homelessness. I'm not saying the two are connected, but I'm pretty sure they were. I got to New York eventually and to the Port Authority, exactly the same experience. And I thought, wow, there's a real problem here. And then when I started doing psychiatry, I started reading about deinstitutionalization, the move away from institutions into the community, which is all good and well, provided the money follows the patient, which I'm not sure happens. So Danny's been describing the individuals he sees. John, you were mentioning earlier about this rapid turnaround where people are not properly rehabilitated and ultimately reintegrated in a way that gives them a better chance of, of not just being well, but staying well and ultimately reclaiming some level of, of, of dignity. So John, your thoughts in response to what I've been saying now. Yeah, I, I think there are a couple of things and, and, you know, I, I mean, the one, the one with what you're saying is, is the prevalence, you know, something we, we, that never seems to be acknowledged in society is the prevalence of mental illness in our societies. Yeah. Um, all the, all the time. It, you know, you see it in private people. Everyone pretends they don't come and see you, but right. it's half the community, you know, and, and you see it, you know, the moment institutions close, you, you, you get a sense of that. The, the real problem, I think, of the institutions is, is kind of ironic because it, what they offered was economies of scale. Yes. They offered a cheap way of removing a huge number of people from, from society and, and kind of getting them out of the way. Right. And, and that, you know, so yes, the institutionalization needs to happen, needs to happen, but we got to understand that it's not a cheap exercise. And it, it, you know, because you're 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 trying to find a more humane way of looking after masses of people who you've crowded to, together in inhumane conditions, because that's the cheapest way to do it, and you've done it out of sight of the public. Right. Um, and and the second thing, you know, to me, the most important reason to deinstitutionalization is because the problem of mental ill health is never going to be addressed until we as a society take ownership of it completely. Right. And, and that is the real problem of hiding people away in institutions. You see, I think from, 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 from my perspective, it, it, it was almost inhumane to deinstitutionalize because I'm seeing so many people walking the streets who are not getting the care that they should. 
And so we have to find a, a, a balance between being able to provide facilities for certain members of the community who need longer term care versus medium term versus short term. So I think, you know, to, to, to my mind, the sort of willy nilly closing of institutions and putting people on the street was also not the way to go. And I think people often speak about the Italian model and the, the, the Milan model. But if you look at a lot of what took place in Italy, the money followed the patients and there was a properly integrated community care that existed. My concern here is that we close. It's money is saved and it's taken somewhere else. And so the patients who are supposed to benefit by returning them to the communities with a properly funded uh, uh, care, package of care, is not going to be there. And we're going to end up with a lot of people like the ones that Danny encounters standing in the queues talking to themselves, the folk that I've encountered all over the place. And, and, and so that's really a concern. So I think there needs to be a more balanced discussion around the role of institutions and deinstitutionalization. Crick, I don't know what your thoughts are on that. Do you have? Yeah. Um, I mean, I've, I just fully agree with you. You know, we really need a balanced care model. And I, I think these are, this is quite well articulated actually in the latest WHO 2022 report, which right. is really trying to pull the evidence together. I think there's a massive risk with advocating for deinstitutionalization if the money doesn't follow people from the institution into the community. And so I, that's why I always get nervous about speaking about or advocating for deinstitutionalization because it immediately becomes a cost-saving device. Yeah. And, and so I think we've got to be using the language of investment, investment yes. in community mental health care, investment in primary care. And by community mental health care, I mean community residential care for people who need long-term residential care, food support, food security, you know, going back to our poverty discussion, yeah. providing for the holistic needs of an individual, you know, not just providing uh, psychotropic medication, but saying, where would they be housed? You know, where would they find food? How could they find meaningful employment or, or a meaningful role for themselves? How can they be linked back with their families? Um, so these are all imp really important. When we, t when we talk about deinstitutionalization, we should never speak about it on its own. It's got to involve a much bigger conversation about investing in mental health. And as John says, you know, giving priority to mental health is a, is a critical issue for our society. I think that's important, but it's, you know, sometimes in, in, in terms of getting through to politicians, the more complex it is, the quicker they switch off. And I think that we're talking about a complex issue in terms of finding that balance. And in a way, I suppose we have to find a, a, a simple way of communicating a complex issue to catch the attention and to actually drive the point home to actually get what we potentially need for our patients. And, 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 and we are their voice, never mind the data, but we as individual practitioners are their voice. And, and, and that's why I was very specific when I was president of the College of Psychiatrists in introducing public mental health into the curriculum of specialist trainees because I wanted trainees to, 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 to really think more carefully about the social determinants of, 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 of mental illness and not to necessarily become, you know, banner carrying activists, but to think actively in terms of how they could contribute to, to, to changing the system. I know, you know, John Crick, I think you were both part of that when, when, when we introduced it. And, and, and that was my thinking really was, was to get people kind of upskilled intellectually and, and in terms of data, which they could then use in their individual institutions. And if everybody's pushing and pulling in the same direction, maybe we get some traction. John and then Crick, and then I'm going to come back to Danny with a, another question for him. Yeah, absolutely. I, um, you know, we, we've, we're still primarily training specialists in this country to, to, for a, some kind of first world private practice model. Right. Um, you know, we, we, we need our training to include the conversation about how we convert the system to something healthier. Yes. And, and that's not happening. And that, that conversation becomes more urgent every day. Right. Um, you know, and, uh, I don't think any of us, you really have, you know, have all the answers. Um, but that, you know, in a country like this, that is where we should be directing the majority of the bulk of our research yeah. um, the, the, and the bulk of our training. It's how do we convert to a healthier system? Um, and, you know, we, yeah, we need, we need to come up with those answers ourselves. And, you know, John, when you look at the extent of poverty, and you look at the extent of uh, lifetime prevalence of mental illness in this country, which is 30.1%, uh, high levels 
of poverty, high levels actually of potential mental illness. One would think it's an obvious conversation that we need to have. Crick, your thoughts before I close off with, with a question to Danny? Yeah, I mean, I think the more we talk about this, you know, the more we put it out there in the public arena, the better. And and also the, the more we talk to, we stop talking just to ourselves. You know, we've got to be speaking to people who are not involved in mental health, people who are involved in economic development policy and education policy in policy around housing, you know, civil society, building a broad movement of people who are invested and, and advocating for, for mental health. Right. This is not going to happen just by specialists on their own. So it has to be, it has to become a movement, you know, and, yes. and I think the, you know, the, 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 uh, as you're saying for policymakers, it has to be a simple, clear message. For me, it's a very simple, clear message. If we're thinking about human development, building social cohesion, building society, democracy, you know, mental health is right there in the middle of all of Absolutely. this. How can it not be? And yeah. I think the, the only problem is that it's not a quick fix. This is something where you have to invest and you have to be a long, term investor because I think the benefits accrue with generations. And if you think about it carefully, this whole transmission, this intergenerational transmission of problems, which just takes you deeper and deeper and deeper into the mire, is something which is not fully appreciated. So I think one has to be a very patient investor, and I think politicians are not generally patient. They want a quick return on an investment. But that's another discussion for another day. Uh, Danny, I drive past homeless people, and in my mind, I'm often thinking to myself, I go from conception, and I'm talking conception in the womb, to the street corner. You know, how does that happen? What is their story? What is the pathway to poverty? I don't know that you have an answer, and I'm not sure that you've really necessarily thought about it in the way that I'm describing it, but I just would like your thoughts. Well, there's, they definitely all have a story, and it's, it's from – um, uh, a lot of them is about losing their family, you know, because the the husband he became a druggie or he got involved in alcohol. He lost his family, lost his kids. Um, they don't want to see him. They don't want to know him. So he gave up on life, um, and has ended up in the street. That's a very common one. Um, another common one is um, gender-based violence or right. what's it that LGBTQ. What do you, Q, I, I, yes, lots of alphabet. Lots of those where they get, they get, um, banned from society, from their community right. because they see themselves as a woman instead of a man. Right. Or, or vice versa. Um, gays, lesbians, they'll get, you know, driven away from their community. Um, but it's, it's always drugs, alcohol, violence. And then, of course, people lose their jobs. Mm-hmm. Uh, or you've got people coming from other African countries that right. come to South Africa because they hear it's it's brighter here or they've got more opportunity and they end up finding themselves stuck here. They lose their passport, they can't get out of the country and they're stuck now in the street. So it's all those, you know. So but then, then when, I, when I go into the communities, into the townships, and you see what goes on there, there's, there's no way that we're not going to have mental challenges or you know uh, yes. problem with mental wellness there's just absolutely no way where kids you've got children fending for themselves children going to fetch food for the family we're talking two or three year olds having to find their way i mean i don't have children but imagine if you have your child leaving your home to go and find food at a, at a local soup kitchen right how does that child grow up yes what is that child growing up with because yeah so so it's, I think if, 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 if we don't deal with poverty as well, if, you know, like you said, uh, politicians want to see the answer now, so they don't deal with it. Right. But that's the challenge. This one doesn't deal with it. They don't deal with it. They don't. And what's happening is it's just getting worse and worse and worse and worse. Okay. So I think so, that where you've kind of ended is, 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 is where a lot of current papers begin with adverse childhood experiences on the way towards adult psychopathology. 100%. So, 100%. I want to thank each one of you for taking the time to share of your knowledge and experience. Greatly appreciate it. I think this is a very deep discussion, and I'm hoping that, uh, you know, it will not end with this particular podcast because I know these conversations take place all the time. So, 
I usually close off with a quote, and I'm going to take a quote in closing from the South African government's Poverty and Inequality in South Africa final report. And this is something that a Mrs. Vitboy of Phillipstown said. Poverty is not knowing where your next meal is coming from and always wondering when the council is going to put your furniture out and always praying that your husband must not lose his job. To me, that is poverty. This has been Beyond Madness in proud association with Adcock Ingram OTC, sponsors of Brave, inspiring communities one pharmacy at a time. Remember, there is no health without mental health, and until next time, take care.